The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Thank you, Rich, for that. So we are going to be in Genesis 3 this morning. Um, Let me go ahead and just pray and ask God to lead us through our time here this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us. And again, you draw us back together on a Sunday, cool, cold Sunday here to be around your word, to open it up, to study it, and yet we can do all of those things, and if your spirit doesn't land the truth on our hearts, what good is it? And so we ask for you to do what we can't do for ourselves. We ask that you would convict us, encourage us, and pray that you'd grant peace where peace is needed, repentance where repentance is needed. We ask that you would do the work in our hearts here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Friday night, we had a family night. And Chris made some really good gluten-free brownies. There is actually a gluten-free brownie that exists that is good. We enjoyed that. Some ice cream as well. And then we pulled out an old classic movie, Little Women. If you haven't seen the movie or read the book, it's about four sisters who are growing up in New England during the Civil War. There are themes in the movie, themes like the importance of family. There's the themes of forgiveness. Um, Joe, one of the sisters, gets very angry at her little sister Amy. Amy had taken all of Joe's writings of plays and threw them in the fire out of anger. Amy ends up being out on thin ice, falls through the ice, Joe saves her, and they have this reconciliation and this moment of forgiveness. But one of the themes is the theme of pursuit. In the, in the story or in the movie, the three sisters, one dies, Three of them are pursued by these guys. Meg, she's the oldest sister, and it's a nerdy school teacher that comes along and pursues her. The youngest is pursued by a guy named Lori, and then in in the main actress life, Joe, she's pursued by this German professor named Frederick. Now, What makes the movie feel good is that you want these girls, you want these girls to be pursued. You you see them in their state and they're poor and their dad has been injured in the Civil War and you know that their future is coming and you're hoping that they are pursued and even married. You're hoping that something good happens in all of this. This morning, we're going to see how God has pursued us and made us his own. 
for God to pursue us is a good thing. And I think this morning there are some individuals here whom God is pursuing. We see pursuit in the world. Like I mentioned earlier with little women, see that guy is pursuing that girl. You might see a team that is pursuing that player, company pursuing that CEO. If you follow sports, you know that the University of Colorado has been pursuing Deion Sanders for a head coach. And they got him. He's their head coach. This morning, again, we are seeing how God pursues us. Now, one of the things that comes to mind is when that guy is pursuing that girl, that girl is attractive to him. When that team is pursuing that player, that player has skills that will make that team better. When the company is pursuing the CEO, it's thought that the CEO can bring benefit to the business. Deion Sanders took Jackson State to an undefeated season. Hopefully he can turn this program around in Colorado. You see, if you are going to pursue someone, you're going to pursue them because you see value to them. And you're saying, I want that for me. Here when we look at Genesis 3, we're seeing God pursuing Adam and Eve, and we are Adam and Eve in the story. God is pursuing us. So to set the context for this week and for the next few weeks, we're beginning a short Advent series. Advent means coming. Jesus is coming. And Jesus has two Advents. He comes in Bethlehem. That's his first coming. And so the Old Testament is waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And, and we now at this time of year are reflecting on his first coming. So our series is going to largely focus on his first coming. But we live on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, and we're waiting for the second advent of Jesus. We're waiting for the second coming of Jesus. And there will be themes that come in our messages uh, over the weeks, the next few weeks, about his second coming as well. We anticipate the return of Jesus. Genesis 3 helps us anticipate the coming of Jesus. Just to set the context, in chapter 1, here's God. God who needs nothing. God who has all glory and he's created the world in six days and he's created the universe beyond that. And you get to the end of chapter 1 and it says that everything that God had made, including man, it indeed was very good. No blemishes, no faults, no dysfunctionality that's going on. And God takes man and he chooses to put him in this region or this garden. And in that garden, he gives the man rule and reign over all things. This is your world now to exercise dominion over. He says, but I've got one rule for you, just one. The one rule is that tree right there, the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. You are not to eat of the fruit of that one tree. And then we move into chapter 3, where our focus is this morning. Chapter 3, beginning with just point one to our sermon, the practice of sin. The practice of sin. It says in verse 1, Now the serpent, 
The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Who is this serpent that we're introduced to the very beginning of the Bible? Well, we know who this serpent is going all the way to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, and here's the phrase, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The serpent that we're seeing here is none other than Satan himself, crafty Satan himself. He's appeared in the form of a snake. And as a deceiver, he moves in on God's creation. Look what happens in the middle of verse 1. He approaches the woman and he asks a question. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We don't read of any, any kind of introductions here. Simply moves in and he has a strategy to his temptation, his deceit. The strategy begins with a question. And the question is, your ultimate authority, did your ultimate authority really say, actually say, you shall not eat, and notice how he phrases this, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, the woman responds in verses two and three and says, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, there might be a little crack in her character right here because we don't read that phrase, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Neither shall you touch it. That wasn't back in chapter two. And perhaps Eve, her heart is beginning to be put on display right now, adding things to what God has said that he never did say. He never said, neither shall you touch it. But notice that Satan has come with a question. Did God really say that? Are you, are you, are you, really, like, are you really submitting to God himself here? Eve responds and says what she says there in verse 2. But notice how the serpent moves on in verse 4. The serpent says to the woman, you shall not surely die. So he starts off with a question about who God is. And then he moves with a conclusion that your disobedience is inconsequential. God had said you will die. Here is the result of your sin. You will die in chapter 2. But now here's the rivalry from Satan. Your sin is inconsequential. He tells you that it's not a big deal. Keep on going with your disobedience to God. Or if you haven't yet, go ahead with it because it has no real consequence. And then he uses another strategy, and that's the strategy of comparison. He says this in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the steps. He questions the ultimate authority of God. Is she going to submit to him? 
He says that there's no consequences to disobeying God. And then he says, go ahead with it because look at who you could be. Look at how you could be satisfied. Look at the whole new level of you if you just take this step. And at this point, there's a change in her heart that happens. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 6, notice how Eve moves into sin. It's in a triplet form here. It says that she noticed it was good for her. It was good for food, good for her senses. It was appealing to her eyes. It was a delight to her eyes. And then there was a sense in which it appealed to her personal gratification because it was desirable to make her wise. This is how sin moves. It moves from the flesh to the eyes to pride. This is what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, where he said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And his point is, you can't say that you have perfect full love for the Father and perfect full love for the world. If you love the world, you don't have love for the Father. And then he moves on and he says this, listen, for all that is in the world, and here's the triplet form, the desires of the flesh, and that's what Eve had, it was good for the eyes, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, it was going to make her wise, is not from the Father, but is from the world. This is how sin attracts us. This is how Satan uses sin in his strategy to attract us. The desires of the flesh, this was good for her senses, good for food. Sin can be appealing to the eyes, and then, hey, once you step into it, you're going to be gratified. So she takes the fruit and crosses over into disobedience, and she gives it to her husband who was there with her. And then the text says that they sewed fig leaves together. Why did they sew the fig, fig leaves? It's because... They knew they were naked. Now, why would Moses include that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? It's because at the end of chapter 2, when God had created them, chapter 2, verse 25, before sin had entered into the world, here's this picture at the end of, verse, of chapter 2, verse 25. It says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was security there was peace. And then chapter 3, the fall into sin brings shame. That's what sin does. Sin has a tendency to bring shame into people's lives because now your eyes are opened in a whole new way. And now you're considering what other people think of you. And now they're covering up, hiding even hiding from one another. Now, up to this point in chapter 3, Satan is a big part of this story. And consequently, Satan is a big part of our story as well. 
What is Satan's aim in this text here? His aim is to lure people into sin, to, to separate man from fellowship with God. And the way he does that is by tempting God's people to walk away, to live in disobedience to God, to question his authority, to appeal to their senses, and to lie to them. I'll just be better off if I move in this direction with sin and perhaps provide some exceptions for ourselves. This is Satan. And throughout the scripture, we see Satan constantly seeking to lure people into sin. In the book of Job, he uses physical suffering and extreme loss to tempt Job to curse God to his face. In 1 Chronicles, we see Satan showing up in David's life where he incited David to number the people, probably to boost his pride. In our Savior's life, in Matthew 4, in Jesus' life, Satan came and tempted him in the wilderness, saying, hey, look at what you can have. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says that a messenger of Satan was sent to harass him. Ephesians 6, we're told that we face the schemes of the devil. 1 Peter 5, we're told that Satan is roaring. He's roaming. And he's like a lion seeking to devour us. The thing that you see at the beginning here is when God has created something good in chapters 1 and 2, Satan is going to show up and aim to disrupt and destroy what God has made. And here's the reality. If you're a Christian, God has brought you to himself, and you are now a new creation. And Satan's not going to leave God's creation alone. He wants to come in and ruin it. He wants you to be selfish. He wants to separate you from God. He wants you to minimize God's command. He wants you to think that God's commands are negotiable for you. I am the exception here. Or maybe what God said there is true of most people, but it's not true of me. After all, he's all love and he wants me to be happy. Know this, Satan wants you to disobey God. So young people, how might Satan do this in your life? Well, he uses comparison quite a bit. He wants you to compare yourself to the approval of others around you. Maybe thoughts like this, I need to be happy, and I can't be happy following God like this. I'll be missing out on so much. I need to be like them. I can't be happy unless I'm like them, unless I talk like them, unless I get drunk like them, unless I give my body up to them, unless I make decisions in my life like that. I can't be happy unless I'm like them. Young children, I remember a time when I was lured into sin, thinking I wouldn't be happy unless I had something that I wanted. I was probably only four or five, and my dad had known the local pizza shop owner. His name is Leo. And Leo welcomed us into the pizza shop. My dad was talking with him, and in the back room, his sons were playing with cars. We were on the floor, and I saw this little car that looked so attractive, and I thought, I have to have it, or else I just won't be happy. And so I don't think I could have been older than five, 
my little hands went for the five-finger discount, you know? Just grabbed that thing, stuck it in my pocket, went home that night. And I got busted by my parents later on. Where'd that car come from, Nate? But that's how sin works. Unless I get that thing, unless I get that relationship, unless I get that toy, I won't be happy. So men and women, Satan wants you to walk away from the creation of marriage. Satan wants you to turn away from what God has created, and he wants you to walk in rebellion to God. And he wants you to think, I'm the exception here. Look at what I could have. I could be, off, I could be much better off than where I'm at right now. Here we are. We're being faced with sin over and over again. This is Adam. Adam is our representative. And we're all born with this sin nature. What we see in verses 1 through 7 is Adam, our head, our human representative, going forth into sin. And the rest of Scripture goes on to explain to us that as Adam went into sin, hey, he plunged us into sin. We're born as sinners. There's a theological term for this. It's called federal headship. And the idea is that Satan or Adam is our, our head, our, our, the representative of humanity. And when he goes off the cliff into sin, we go off the cliff with him. Illustration would be like this. It's what I've heard. The king, who is the representative of the country, when he goes to war, guess who else is at war? The whole country is at war. He represents the country. So the Bible says, here's Adam. He went off into sin, and so have we. Romans 5, verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Who's the one man? It's Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die. There it is. There's Adam. There's our head. Now there's a second Adam that's coming. So also Christ shall be made alive. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But here's where we are. We're at the end of verse 7 of chapter 3. We're all the sinners. And we can look back over our life this last week and see that we've been lured into thoughts of sin, actions of sin, words of sin, and the curtain could come down right there on us all, and we could be totally separated from God forever and ever. God could just be done with us and say, okay, I'm going to take this whole thing called the human race and just be done. We'll start something else called, and you name it. But the curtain doesn't come down because that's not God's plan. Instead, we move into Act 2, verses 8 through 13 where we see the God who pursues, the God who pursues. In verse 8, here's Adam and Eve with fig leaves sewn together around them. And it says that they heard, that is Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, that's just, for me, that, that catches my attention when I see that because they can hear the sound of God walking. What was it like in Eden? What was it like to hear the footsteps of God, perhaps, you know, making noise on the grass or on twigs or on leaves that had fallen? The Bible doesn't expand on it, so we'll just keep going. 
But notice what happens in the second half of verse 8. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now here's the creator from Genesis 1. What did the creator make? He made the very thing that they're hiding in. He made those trees. And here's Adam and Eve thinking, I can play a little hide and seek from God and perhaps guard myself from him. It's like a little child trying to play hide and seek with his parents who know the ins and outs, the nooks and crannies of the house everywhere. And here is God approaching them. And in their foolishness, they think that they can hide themselves from God. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And that question is not a question in which God is lacking knowledge. That's a question. He knows where they are, and now he's speaking up, and he's going to see if they're going to speak back. Where are you, Adam? Where are you right now? He's drawing Adam out. And notice what Adam responds with in verse 10. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, this goes back to chapter 2. The end of chapter 2, no hiding there, but he's naked. Now, in chapter 3, after he's committed the sin, his eyes are opened in a new way, and he sees his nakedness in a way that he hasn't before, and now he's saying, I've committed this sin, and now I want to hide. And that's how sin works with us, folks. When sin just comes into our lives, there is a propensity to hide. To hide that act to hide ourselves, whatever it might be. When we're busted for sin, that's our tendency. Let's run and hide. But it keeps going here. Notice what he says in verse 11. God questions him, and he says, who told you that you were naked? I mean, he had no comparison before in chapter 2. He just was naked. And now this new idea has come in that he's naked. So who told you that you were naked? And then he follows up with the question that he knows the answer to. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? There it is. There's the confrontation. I've told you what not to do. And now I'm just going to get right to the point have you transgressed me? Have you stepped over the boundary and committed sin? And notice what Adam says in verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, here's man. He's being pursued by God. He's being confronted by God. 
And what's the tendency when he's confronted with his sin? The tendency is to shift the blame. I didn't, just get your attention off me and put it onto somebody else right now. I may have sinned, but it's her fault. Goes to Eve. I may have sinned, but it's the serpent's fault. This is how we are in our sin and our foolishness. You remember Dr. Bookman's words, for some of you who are here, he would say, sin makes you stupid. The laptop was open and I just couldn't help myself. I just went cruising through those pictures there. Or, I couldn't help myself. They said something mean to me, so I just had to say it right back to them. I had to blame them. They're the ones who started it. Don't blame me. Get your attention on them. Here is the sinfulness that is in all of us. And folks, wherever you've been this week, or maybe even as you look over this last year, or maybe you look over the patterns of your life, when you're confronted with sin, do you own it? Or do you have a tendency to just push it off and blame people, problems, circumstances? It's a normal tendency. Why? Because sin is in us. It's kind of interesting when you raise children. You don't have to teach them how to be mean. You don't have to teach them how to steal or how to lie. Why not? Because it's part of us. And when we're confronted with our sin, guess what's part of us? We want to minimize the sin and we want to blame others. So man here is trying to shift the blame, trying to hide from God. And here's God. Here's God who is pursuing his people. Now, why is God pursuing his people? Why is he doing it? There's an observation that I want you just to see here. In verses 1 through 6, when Satan starts talking here, he refers to God in a certain way. His name is simply God, G-O-D. And throughout that little exchange that takes place between the serpent and Eve, continually the name is simply God. It's in reference to his attribute as the creator, the one who is in charge, the one who has authority. But in verse 8, when God shows up on the scene, the name of God expands. So if you like to circle things in your Bible, you can circle or underline the difference that takes place between verses 7 and 8 with the name of God. Notice how the name changes. Now it's the Lord God over and over. Why is this shift happening? It's because when the term Lord is included, we are using the name that describes him as a covenant partner. As somebody who's in relationship. This is the name that he uses and presents himself this way to Israel. I am the Lord God. I am Yahweh here. I enter into a covenant with my people. I'm a partner in this. And this faithful Lord God, this faithful covenant partner, he does not give up on his people. He pursues his people. And the point is that when Adam and Eve are running away in disobedience here, 
God could have stayed where he was and said, okay, I'll let you go. This thing is dissolved. But no, the Lord God, he continually moves towards his people. He pursues them. And you see this throughout scripture. You see it throughout the book of of Genesis, where main characters such as Noah, God comes to him, and he's going to fulfill his plan through Noah's life. God comes to Abraham, and he's going to fulfill his plan through Abraham's life. God comes to Jacob, and he fulfills his plan through Jacob's life. And guess what? None of these guys were perfect. Noah gets off the ark and gets lit up, and something happens there. We're not exactly sure, but it's nothing to write home about. Abraham, God comes to him and pursues him. And Abraham, you know, he lies about his wife several times. He's a fearer of man. Jacob, he's a deceiver. You move out of Genesis and you come to Exodus and you see, here is God, the covenant God who has chosen to make a relationship with his people. He's going to continue to pursue Israel. And over and over again, Israel is going to turn around and complain, grumble, and sin against God. And there's God faithfully pursuing his people over and over again. He comes to his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. He makes his dwelling there. He comes to his people through the prophets. Listen to me. I'm speaking to you, people. I'm here. The point is that the Bible is filled with people who sin against God. They choose their own way, and yet God continually moves towards them. Now, don't be deceived. There are certainly consequences to our choices. And that's where the rest of this story goes. The third point here is the consequences of sin. I'm just going to move through this quickly. I'm not going to read through everything. But in verse 16, the woman has sinned. So what is the consequence of your sin against the Lord God? Well, she's going to have pain in childbirth. She's going to have a desire or an urge that is for her husband's position as a leader, but he's going to rule over her. In verses 17 through 19, we move on to the man. For Adam, his consequence is going to be that his work will be painful and sweaty. It's going to be hard. Things won't come easy. A couple of weeks ago, probably a month ago now, I was messing around with some blocks of wood. We got a pop-up camper, and these blocks of wood are supposed to go under the jack stands, and I was moving around for storage for the winter, and pulling out these blocks of wood, and they had dirt on them, so I was just banging them like this to get the dirt off. Just a little bit of work. Shouldn't have been a problem. Until, I don't know where my eyes were, the blocks that I was smashing, all of a sudden my thumb became the block, and I smashed my thumb. And so, if you can see that, I've got a black thumbnail right there. Painful. Just supposed to be run-of-the-mill work. You go through your work and you say, it's just supposed to be neatly, neat, done neatly and done orderly. Aren't supposed to be any problems. You're going to work tomorrow morning. There's going to be problems for you waiting on your desk. Why? It's the consequences of living in a sinful world. And then there's separation. Verses 22 through 24, the end of the chapter, God says, I can't have them in Eden anymore. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken. He drove out the man. So he has to go. He's pushed out. But I want to go back to verses 14 and 15. There's a consequence in the serpent's life. Verse 14, 
The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So here's a consequence for the serpent. It's going to be crawling on its belly everywhere it goes. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When he says that I am going to put enmity between you and the woman, and I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and your, her offspring, there is going to be the presence of conflict. And when we think about conflict, we tend to think, oh, I don't want any more conflict. This is the most gracious conflict that could ever be given. And here's why. If there's no conflict, Satan wins and we're done. If there is conflict, there's a fighting chance. And God says, I'm not going to let you win, Satan, and be done. I'm going to put conflict. I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. And throughout the Old Testament, you've got Eve's seed, Eve's line that is being passed down through Seth, and then the patriarchs of Genesis, and then Israel throughout the Old Testament. And over and over again, there's conflict that happens between her seed and between Satan's seed. There's battle that takes place, and God keeps showing up over and over again and saying, I'm not going to let you win, Satan. I'm not going to let you win. I'm going to push my people along. And then there's this ultimate conflict at the end of verse 15, where the seed now is expressed in terms of a pronoun, he. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there's a picture here, someone's walking down the sidewalk and in the bushes, there's a creepy little snake. It slithers out onto the sidewalk, raises its ugly head and the person lifts up his leg and brings his heel down onto the head of the serpent. And in that moment, the serpent opens up its mouth with its fangs and sinks them into the heel of the person. And yet, the serpent is crushed. The blow to the head has brought it to an end. But the one who crushed it didn't come out unscathed. There's pain and suffering that takes place. And so from Genesis 3:15, we have what some theologians call the proto-evangel, the evangel, the proto-euangelion. You can it's kind of pronounced in a number of different ways. Proto is simply first. Evangel is gospel. The first mention of the gospel is given here where Jesus would come and fulfill this. The good news where Satan will someday be crushed or destroyed. And yet, that crushing and destruction would not take place without pain and suffering. His coming, Jesus' coming, there was a pursuit. He was coming to deal with a conflict. He was coming to deal with an enemy. He was coming to defeat him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
You can study that in Hebrews 2. You can study it at the end of Revelation, where the final picture of Jesus is coming is that Satan will once and for all be completely destroyed. And so even right now, we look back and we see Jesus going to the cross and destroying the works that Satan had done in humanity. Jesus' work on the cross was going to render Satan's work in the lives of people, the work of sin, and say, I can undo that in people's lives. People won't have to be defeated by sin as they stand before God. And here's Jesus, the mighty warrior, living a perfect, obedient life, going through the same temptations, and yet succeeding. The first Adam fails. The second Adam goes out into the wilderness and perfectly obeys. Satan can't get a grip on him. And Jesus says, okay, all of those who are under the head of Adam now have a second head. There's a second opportunity, if you will, for creation. There's a man who can lead you and who can give you the gift of his obedience because the first man couldn't, Romans 5. The second man can. That's Jesus. And so he comes and destroys the works of the devil. And so here we are living on this side of the cross where Jesus has come, died, and rose again. And then we're looking at his second coming, the second advent, and we're saying, Jesus come because we want Satan once and for all destroyed. We want him done. Yes, the permanence of sin, if you will, the judgment of sin that comes has been rendered defeated by Christ. And yet the effects of sin are just being splashed up against us in our lives right now. We're tired of that. And so we say, Jesus, come. So Jesus was coming to pursue. He was coming to pursue his work in destroying the works of the devil. But he was also coming to serve and to love sinners like Adam and Eve. You look throughout Scripture and you see, here's why Jesus came. Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And why did he come? To give his life as a ransom for many, for the many who were under the first Adam. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Here's the Son of Man. He came. Why did he come? He came to seek and save the lost. That's who we are. Before Christ comes, we're lost. John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You might be here as a tire kicker. By that I mean, you're just kind of tire kicking religion. And the thing that you need to know about God, about the Bible, about Jesus, is that Jesus came for you. 
Jesus came and offered his life as a ransom for many. He came to save the lost. And the way he does that is by going to the cross and taking the judgment that you deserve for your sin, the judgment from God, and then giving his life, his obedient life, as a gift to you that can only be received in faith. Here's Jesus who is coming. And the Apostle Paul can say this, that he came into the world to save sinners. And there he goes on to say, of whom I am the foremost. And some of you hearing this might be like, you don't know what's in my past. I don't want it brought up. I don't want anybody to know about it. You don't know what's there. Well, I know what's here. And what's here is that Jesus came to conquer sin. And Jesus came for the sinners. And his work on the cross is greater than any act of sin that you will ever commit. And so now you're at this place where will you respond to God? You've been pursued. Even this morning, you're hearing this. You're being pursued by God. This is God's means of pursuing you with the truth. Will you respond to the truth? Christian, we're moving into this holiday season. I guess we're in it. We've already had Thanksgiving. Now here comes Christmas. And one of the things that you can take away just as you're moving towards Christmas is that you have been pursued by God. Wherever you were when God reached you, when God saved you. For me, I believe I was saved as a four-year-old in my parents' bedroom, sitting up on the bed. There was God pursuing me in my life. Nate, where are you? What have you done? And my little four-year-old brain had enough to know that God loved me, he sent his son, and I had sinned against him, and forgiveness needed to happen. Didn't know how all that takes place, but I knew that. And God was pursuing me there. For you, Christian, wherever God has saved you, he has been pursuing you, and he doesn't relent. He continues because he's the covenant Lord God. You have value in spite of what's happened in the past between your salvation and even now. You have value because God chooses to pursue you. He loves you. So you have been pursued by God. And yes, we live in this moment where the effects of sin are still splashing all over us. Satan has been defeated, so he no longer has a grip on my life. But I live in this world where the effects of sin are just splashing over and over again. And it's hurtful. There's pain that comes with it. For some, there's shame that comes from it. For others, there's ongoing temptation, and you're saying, when will this temptation be done? I just want to crush it on its head. And here's the promise. Jesus has come, and he's coming again. We look to his last coming, and we see the victory that he's won, and we look to his future coming, 
And we say, okay, God, I know that it will someday come to an end. The effects of sin will someday be gone. And we'll live in relationship with God in the new Eden, in paradise with him forever and ever. You've been pursued by God. Now we have these promises continue to move us through this life because of what he's done. Take encouragement, folks, not for who you are, but for who God is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are this morning. You're a God who pursues. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for sending your son. And even now, as we come to this table, we're reminded in a very specific way, in a very tangible way of how you pursued us. And so help us now, Lord, to recall to mind and to heart what you've done for us on the cross, how you came to save sinners. I pray that even during this time, we'll take moments to repent and confess sins, sins committed in action, in thought, maybe obedience that we refrained from that we should have stepped into, so sin on that front. And I just pray, Lord, that as we move into this, that we would be encouraged as we handle these elements that our sin doesn't defeat us. You're our deliverer. And so we handle these elements with confidence and hope in who you are. And we handle these elements in thankfulness because you have delivered us from sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.